Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey guys, Zach Twomley here. This is When Diplomacy Fails, and you are about to listen to the final episode of The Long War. If this is your first time listening, cool. Welcome to this crazy, wonderful world of ours. If this is your 16th time listening and you're waiting for the final instalment, thank you for sticking with us all this time, and I hope that you really have been enjoying it as much as I How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. It dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I've enjoyed bringing this crazy story to you guys. This is, in fact, the last episode of When Diplomacy Fails in 2017, and yeah, what a year it's been. We've been through an awful lot, and I've so much to be thankful and amazed about. I mean, When Diplomacy Fails has 
really, you could say it's taken off this year. Between joining Patreon, five weeks to run wild, your guys' amazing responses and feedback and so much support. I think what I've really learned from this year is that you guys really love your history. You love hearing about these eras in history that aren't really paid very much attention to or are kind of glossed over or even you could say forgotten. If you guys would like to hear something I've been spending an awfully long time on and if you're following me in social media and any kind of seer and make sure you do if you are not then you'll know all about this but if you want to hear about a forgotten conflict I feel like where else better to start than the Korean War. From the 8th of January 2018 we will be starting to take a look at this incredible conflict. A conflict which, even if you think you know it, even if you think you're bored with it, you don't want to go near it, it's not any kind of war that interests you. Trust me, you're going to find what I have to say about this conflict pretty darn interesting. A whole new style is on the way, a whole new way of looking at the Korean War is on the way, and I think our juicy analysis of the diplomacy between the different Cold War friends and foes will really tickle your fancy. If you like When Diplomacy Fails, then you will love When Diplomacy Fails' take on the Korean War. So I hope to see you guys on the 8th of January. But until then, thank you so much for your support over 2017. It's meant the world to me. I just can't, I really, I really can't get over how great you guys have been. And I hope to see you all in the new year. So stay safe, enjoy yourselves, have a great time with your friends and your family. Don't have too many food comas. We've all been there, but don't have too many. And I'll see you all soon. Hello and welcome, history friends, patrons all, to the Long War episode 16. To recap, last time we built you guys a picture of how things were in Vienna while the siege endured between the middle of July to the middle of September 1683. For roughly those two months, the garrison somehow held on as the Ottomans made ever more progress, and despite some heroic displays on both sides, the story seemed to be coming to its desperate end by the evening of the 10th of September. It was at this moment we learned that the sentries atop the tower in St. Stephen's Cathedral saw them, figures in the distance to the west, mingling about in the Vienna woods or Wienerwald. Something was clearly collecting and being prepared in this covered region, but enough clues had been let out to let the garrison, under the command of the indefatigable Rudiger of Starenberg, know that something was up. For starters, the glorious procession of Kara Mustafa himself towards the foot of these mountains to personally reorganise the defences and bulk up his forces to the west of the city, that was an encouraging sign. The Turk was plainly preparing to defend himself against something, and that something was surely, well, hopefully, the relief army, which had signalled its presence by rockets roughly a week before. The garrison held its breath, and Starenberg himself was likely unable to even believe that, literally hours before, it seemed as though the final Ottoman attack to force his men off the walls and into the final battle in the city streets was about to happen, but that at this moment, his saviour was coming. Incredibly, in one of those incidences where truth is stranger than fiction, the multinational force did indeed arrive just in time. Had Charles of Lorraine linked up with the Allied Imperial Force and the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth Force a week, or even a few days later, Vienna could well have been a pile of rubble in Turkish hands by the time they did attack, if indeed they determined to attack at all at that stage. A series of different motives brought these Allied commanders together, but they were now bound by the same goal 
to attack the Turk in a sweeping assault down the tumbling hills of the Wienerwald and to strike a crushing blow against Karim Mustafa's dreams. Time would tell as dawn approached on the 12th of September 1683 whether such a plan would be brought to a triumph. Let's bring you to the scene now then as we join, not the Allied camp up on the hills, but the enemy camp preparing itself around the city of Vienna. Karim Mustafa, as we'll see, was far from throwing in the towel as the 12th of September dawned. No sooner does the Hussar lower his lance than a Turk is impaled upon its spike, which not only disorders but terrifies the foe. That blow cannot be defended against or deflected, often transfixing two persons at a time. Others flee in eager haste from such a sight, like flies in a frenzy. Historian Vespasian Kukovci, writing in his 1684 Commentaries on the Siege of Vienna. of his greatest success, of his life's work and ambition, and now at this pivotal moment, all seemed at once to be in jeopardy. Karim Mustafa had been vested with the powers of the Sultan once he left Belgrade all those months before, and he would need all the powers of this rank, of Srasker, in order to defend this progress that he had made. Convinced of the imminent fall of Vienna, Mustafa was adamant that his force be split in two on the 11th of September, with the arrival of Hungarian reinforcements and the majority of the Tartars under the can the days before, this force was larger than it had been, but the question remained as to whether this would be enough. By now, the original force that had set out from Belgrade and so overwhelmed and overawed everything in its path was living in its own filth. The quality materials and expensive jewels adorning the Grand Vizier's tent and garb could not obscure the fact that his men were significantly diluted from their springtime levels of strength. Several irreplaceable engineers and officers had been culled in fierce and desperate combat, which Mustafa himself had not been expecting, and when we consider the preceding years and months of campaigning, it's not hard to see why he came to so underestimate the city of Vienna's resolve. Progress towards Vienna had been rapid, well, easy would be the more accurate term, and in spite of unreliable weather and the general problems increasingly facing armies the size of Mustafa's, the Grand Vizier had done what he always had vowed to do. Not only that, he had outsmarted the Habsburg forces sent to get him. He had sent several of their units fleeing in terror, and he had added further weight to their anxiety by allowing his auxiliaries, particularly the Tartars, to run roughshod over the majority of the Habsburg heartlands. Armies of fearsome horsemen had raided, pillaged and burnt their way far to the west, to the extent that portions of Bavaria had even kitted out a separate force in order to deal with the danger that they posed. Fortunately for Mustafa now, he had managed to pull back these marauding bands of devastatingly effective warriors, and now planned to use them as a contingent part of his own defence in the battles to come. And there could be no question about it, a battle was destined to come, maybe the following morning, but certainly in the next few days. Information about the relief force was hard to come by, but it was said by his Tartar auxiliaries, with some noted trepidation, 
that the King of Poland and Menace of the Tartars, Jan Sobieski, was among them. Mustafa did not care for their trepidations, he knew the King of Poland was merely a man and that the men he commanded and led would be vulnerable to the usual weaknesses exhibited by armies of his kind. Not for the first time, Mustafa acted as though, despite the signs, that he was still in control. The battle came early in the morning for Charles of Lorraine, positioned as he was on the left flank, with the Danube River directly on his left and Vienna before him. To the centre lay the remainder of the Imperials, under the command of Count Waldeck, while far on the right was the Polish-Lithuanian contingent under Jan Sobieski. Sobieski's winged hussars were believed to be critical to the battle ahead, but little information was available on the suitability of the ground for either horse or infantry, so contingents of infantry supplemented what was otherwise a largely horse-powered Polish-Lithuanian affair. Waldeck, for his part, brought his own secret weapon in the form of the Saxon light cannon, critically important light artillery pieces which were far more mobile and flexible than either the heavy Ottoman or those of the other allied counterparts. From his position at the top of the Wienerwald, Lorraine had been able to observe that most of the fortified positions laid directly in front of his force, with the defence of the siege of Vienna extending then to the right just in front of Waldeck's line. On the far right, though, where Sobieski was expected to attack with a more rapid strategy, the Turks were supplemented by their Tartar auxiliaries, which granted Sobieski the opportunity to flank from here if he moved quickly enough. It would be a team effort above all. Lorraine and Valdek would urgently require Sobieski's additional infantry and cavalry support if they got into difficulty, while Sobieski himself couldn't simply charge down the hill in front of him without the scouting done by the agile light infantry, which could be spared across the line. All relied upon the Saxon light cannon to clear the way, of course, and all were determined to remain in constant contact thanks to the use of runners and couriers making their way horizontally across the slopes. It was just a complex plan that Lorraine bore in mind when he began to order his men down the hill at 5am on the 12th of September, 1683. In the previous evening, Ottoman infantry had moved in groups up the hill and exposed Lorraine's men to withering fire. The Ottoman technological advancement in musketry meant that, at this point in time, Ottoman infantry had the better aligned, more accurate and longer-ranged firearm. To overcome this, Lorraine would need regular artillery support, but until this could be brought to bear he would have to provide his men with a morale boost, and so the religious symbolism was brought to a new level. With many having had communion that morning, a huge white flag painted with a large red cross was carried by the front ranks. This image was visible from as far back as the walls of Vienna, and Starenberg was informed early that morning, as a significantly lighter than usual bombardment began on his men's positions, that the attack had begun with the aid of Christ. Yet Lorraine's advance was far from triumphant, for the moment everything hung in the balance. To begin with, it was proving immensely difficult to coordinate the different flanks. Lorraine had great problems in communicating to Valdek, and even further along to Sobieski, of the need to advance at the right pace. If one flank sped ahead of the other, it was in danger of getting cut off and encircled, yet if one rank moved too slowly, the same problem could well occur, as the men would suffer from a lack of support. Eventually, after some teething problems and casualties to boot, Lorraine's men got it together. Pushing forward and bringing the flexible dragoons to bear, Lorraine was able, from his position atop the Kallenberg Hill, to better coordinate his men into a coherent firing line. 
but even so, progress proved costly. Above all, Lorraine continued to march his men forward along the line, directly in the path of most resistance. As this flank was expected by Karim Mustafa to come under the most intense attack and had been fortified for that very purpose. By the morning of the 12th of September, Ottoman troops were dug in, mindful of their surroundings and orders, and mostly had enough rations to last till the evening. There was no Ottoman rout as soon as the relief army was spotted, much work by Lorraine and his colleagues still had to be done before Vienna could be saved, and the outcome was by no means a foregone conclusion. The Ottoman master of ceremonies could see from his position the extent of Lorraine's attack and of the Turkish defence. He wrote, It looked as if a flood of black pitch was pouring downhill, crushing and burning everything that opposed it. Indeed, the hills themselves were alive with men, all doing their best to advance or defend in the face of fire and difficult terrain. By 10am, Lorraine was able to make some progress when he called on Valdek to supply some of that famous light cannon. This had not been anticipated by the Turks, who didn't count on allies possessing any of the kind of fire support when they attacked their positions. The fire did prove decisive though, the Ottoman guns were disabled, and with this advantage the progress became easier, though still intense and bloody. The streams and gullies proved invaluable positions for defender and attacker alike, and every piece of ground became a contested potential bastion for the soldier to hold on to. As Lorraine's officers moved their men, all were focused on maintaining unity of movement to prevent the opening of gaps in the line that the Turk could exploit. For their part, the Ottoman defence were facing up to these different soldiers from across Germany and Eastern Europe with a strong resolve, professional as they of course were in their own right, but these Europeans seemed quite unlike the previously weak and timid men they had seen in the weeks before. Indeed, this was the first real battle of the whole campaign, and the first real test that the Grand Vizier's army had been forced to face, in circumstances not on its terms or to their direct benefit. All would depend then on the individual bravery and tenacity of the soldier. Yet, as Andrew Wheatcroft noted, these Christians didn't move like their brethren of the previous months. He wrote, The Ottomans, more used to facing Christians who broke and ran before them, were now facing men who fought like demons, constantly pushing forward, sometimes firing in unison, sometimes picking their individual targets. The Ottomans despised those who lacked the courage to fight like them, but these were soldiers who would close with them, driven it seemed by a divine anger, shouting and screaming the words of the day, Jesus, Maria, against the Ottoman cries of Allah, Allah. By 11am, Mustafa had moved his reserve forward to hold the line directly in front of Lorraine's men, as Valdek and the troops were soon brought to bear to fight along a front roughly two kilometres in width. Armed with the latest in military theory, imbued with a sense of the importance of their cause, and more than aware of what was at stake, here were the two armies of East and West squaring off. It must have been an incredible sight, if one filled with intense hand-to-hand contests, bitter standoffs and of course great casualties. The cost of the Grand Vizier's plan was laid out before the Allies, with each post they captured and each position they secured. Try as the Ottomans certainly did though, they were outnumbered by the Allies, with a considerable portion of their force still maintaining pressure on Vienna. Despite the fact that Mustafa had, by midday, turned his full attention towards the unfolding battle, he evidently had never taken his mind off the original prize. 
Had the embattled Turkish regiments milling around and firing intermittently at the Viennese garrison been added to the contest, it would have been a far more even affair, but ultimately, Kair Mustafa set himself at a permanent disadvantage with his failure to see the bigger strategic picture. He may have valued Vienna above all, but he could hardly hold Vienna if the Allies broke through, and this they would do if his men were not properly supported. What was more, where Lorraine had convened with Valdeck and then Sobieski on the far right to buoy up their confidence as much as his own, Mustafa, traditionally, kept to himself. He didn't seek to bolster his men's confidence at any point, and the Pashas in their spread out positions were simply expected to hold the line with no genuine attempts to coordinate a united sense of strategy. Thus, when the Allies began pushing forward, Mustafa added more and more of his reserves to the mix, and came to depend more and more on the Tartars to hold that left flank against the Commonwealth's cavalry, which was expected to come. Mustafa's strategy, as it had been in his campaigns against the Russians, for example, was to simply throw men at the problem. Generally, he had fought battles against outnumbered opponents, so this hadn't been a problem, but the Grand Vizier's strategic shortcomings were never so on display as on the 12th of September, when he couldn't draw on the bank of men that he was used to having, and when the constant draining of his reserves left other flanks dangerously undermanned. Anchoring the line across the two-kilometre front where Lorraine and Valdeck were responsible for were the fortress towns of Neustorf and Heiligenstadt, both of which were well defended by the Ottomans. It took a great deal of back-and-forth charges and counter-charges for the towns to be taken, and at critical points the Ottoman Sapahis would attack and throw back the Allied advance, only to be thrown back themselves by the Allied cavalry in the form of the Bavarian and Saxon cuirassiers. At a critical moment, John George of Saxony himself was seen to lead a charge downhill past the lines of Allied infantry, and finally expelled the Turks from the town of Neustorf, with Heiligenstadt following soon after. It was then, in the midst of their victory, that Lorraine made what may have appeared like a strange decision considering the circumstances. Holding his men together, he ordered that the newly captured towns be fortified, and that the men be allowed to rest and take on some much-needed food and water. The zealous battle cries from the morning had mostly dissipated, and Lorraine knew full well that the fighting had been hard. Food was brought to the lines and the men were given a respite, as the Turks scurried around in the villages and across the gullies in front of them. It was plain now that the position held by the Ottomans had been definitively staked, quite literally, as Mustafa had ordered the banner of the Prophet hammered into the ground across the line to anchor the Turkish defence. It had proved effective, and although Lorraine and Valdek had made good progress by noon, Vienna remained out of reach, and reports suggested that it could fall at any moment. While the men rested themselves, and Lorraine and Valdek reassured them about Vienna, a brilliant sight was playing out on their right side. Far up on the hill where Sobieski's flank had been massed, the king had plainly ordered his men to advance and line up at just the right moment. The sight would have played immensely into the sense of mission and moral superiority in the Allied camp, with the impressive sight of the king, his two subordinates, and their own splendid cavalry. It was impossible for either Habsburg or Ottoman alike to ignore the scene. Men shrieked and pointed from the walls of Vienna, as hollering was heard from among Lorraine and Valdeck's ranks. This was the plan coming into view, of the grand advance of the intrinsic parts of the widely spread out force applying its pressure as one. Though it was chaotic in places, as the difficult terrain claimed more than one artillery wheel or cavalryman, 
Sobieski was able to bring most of his army closely in line with his allies to the centre and left by 2pm. Now the decision remained about how to proceed. Sobieski for his part anticipated that it would take him at least another day to scout ahead and plan out the best terrain for a proper charge for his hussars, if indeed such a terrain could be found. In the event, Lorraine was concerned that his men would not be fully prepared for the battle to come, and he contemplated waiting until the following day before resuming the attack. Legend has it that he was persuaded by an old Saxon officer after conversing with his men. The old officer remarked that God had given them the victory, and that it was now left to them to seize it. Besides, he concluded, he was an old man and very much preferred to enjoy a comfortable bed in Vienna that night, rather than having another night sleeping on the hard ground. This image is of course fun to imagine, but the certain reality is that Lorraine, Valdak and Sobieski all became independently convinced of the need to attack for their own reasons. Not only had the ground posed less problems than anticipated, which Sobieski could conclude with some satisfaction after his men had brought back their reports to him, but above all, Vienna remained a constant concern. Unaware that only a small force continued to apply pressure on Vienna, the lack of information meant that all the Allied commanders imagined the worst. What would occur among their men if the standard of Islam was seen to rise above the Hofburg? Furthermore, if the Turk were allowed to scurry away that night, he may well take up a more advantageous position the next day and undermine their progress. So it was that the Allied commanders, after some hesitation, had decided fully by 3.30pm on the 12th of September that the time had come for the last great assault to be mounted. Kara Mustafa, for his part, had entered crisis mode by the time the momentary pause in the action began at noon. Aware of the disconnected nature of the commanding pashas, as well as the forceful advance of the Christians thus far, Mustafa was concerned at the prospect of facing a renewed assault. And then, on top of all of this, the Polish flank came into view. Sobieski was well known among the Ottoman ranks, after so many campaigns not only against the Turks, but also the Tartars. Now the King of Poland, who, if you've listened to the Jan Sobieski biography, you'll know very well by this point, seemed poised on the most pivotal flank to do the greatest damage to Mustafa's plans. What was worse, Sobieski faced not Janissaries, but unpredictable and by now spooked Tartars, who feared the legend of Sobieski more than they seemed to actually fear his force. Aside from the pressure a renewed assault would bring then, Mustafa now had to factor in the added threat posed by the Poles outflanking his left side and pouring into the camp and the trenches before Vienna, which remained a hive of activity as the struggle for the city seemed to continue. What Mustafa needed above all was to reorganise his lines, but he couldn't really do this as long as the threat of an imminent renewal in the assault loomed. Were he to begin shifting men around now, the Christians would surely lunge forward to exploit the openings. So Mustafa ordered that his men not defend, but attack to throw off the balance and blunt the intentions of the gathering allied ranks. From 3.30pm then, men began to crawl up the slight slope towards Sobieski's lines in a bid to test his ranks, while at the same time Lorraine and Valdek's troops clashed directly with the Ottoman soldiery, attempting to resume the battle after the heavy pause. The action and drama was everywhere intense. Cannonballs and grapeshot obliterated the human body and beast, while limb and heads were severed in an instant from heavy musket ball or sword. In close quarters, the unwieldy Ottoman heavy musket proved a disadvantage, 
while the Allied forces were better able to improvise their smaller musket as a club. Some removed their bayonets altogether and set to the grim and vengeful task of stabbing and slashing at face-to-face range, all the while shouts of support were heard from the walls of Vienna. We do not know how Starenberg felt about the war going on outside his battered bastion, which had served as his home for the last two plus months, but he certainly couldn't afford to take his eye or ear off the enemy, still attempting to make his breakthrough at this desperate last moment. It would be catastrophic to allow such a lapse in judgment at this pivotal moment, so Starenberg doubled down on his activity, moving across the lines and rousing the knackered garrison with news of their imminent rescue, though even he couldn't be sure of the outcome of the battles, raging bitterly outside. The heat was blistering in that September day, but the men on both sides had to continue in this day of days to look to their duty first and their needs second. Where the Allies had begun to push forward on the left and centre, so too had Sobieski determined that now was the moment to strike. Testing first with a trial charge to ensure that the ground was fit for the true charge which was to follow, the results, while costly, were satisfying enough to the Polish king to warrant a true go of it. Further in front of Sobieski's men, the Turks were trying themselves to organise some kind of defence, and the hastily dug trenches from the days before now became a last bastion of the Ottomans' entire flank, as the remainder of the guns were positioned here, and the last vestiges of the Sipahis were gathered to prepare for the charge. The flank had been notably thinned by the absence of the Tartars, which Sobieski couldn't help but notice. The can of the Tartars, so heavily relied upon by Kara Mustafa, had elected to abandon the field once Sobieski's forces came into view. The can in question, Mirad Giray, had seen the Ottoman positions disintegrate over the course of the morning, and the appearance of Sobieski on top of all these setbacks was enough to convince him that the day was lost. He was not about to sacrifice his men's lives, or indeed his own life, for Mustafa's fool's errand. The Grand Vizier could call it insubordination if he wanted, but he couldn't stop the can from going but he couldn't physically stop the can from going. In the space of an hour, 25,000 men had absconded from their positions, leaving a gaping hole in Mustafa's left flank, which he knew he could not fill. Understanding that he could not plug the countless holes now in his line, Mustafa withdrew from the position he had taken in the village, overlooking the battlefield, and returned to his tent with the standard of the Prophet. When his men saw him go, many simply fled in despair, yet... Some were roused by the Pashas to stand in defiance of the circumstances. It was time to present their lives for the Sultan and their God, as their service demanded. Some soldiers did stay to carry out this bravely doomed deed, while others grabbed what they could carry at the risk of being shot on sight to return to their own tents and seize their belongings, and those of their comrades, before heading down the long high road to Hungary. At the sight of this flight of several Ottoman contingents, Lorraine and Valdek felt the force of the advantage behind them. The enemy fire was becoming less determined and frequent, and their advance was making greater progress. To the far right, though, another incredible chapter in the saga of Sobieski was unfolding. This was the preparations that the Polish king was making for the final charge of the winged hussars. Fanning out in traditional formations customary and tested by these very horsemen, Sobieski's ranks presented a fearsome challenge to those that attempted to stand their ground. This had been the true reason for the Grand Vizier's flight. Once they advanced, the cavalry would pick up enough speed to overtake everything at Mustafa's disposal, and he wanted to be long gone with his treasury and ceremonials 
before that occurred. We imagine the Grand Vizier looking longingly back at Vienna as Hannibal looked at Rome before accepting in his heart of hearts that the battle and the campaign had been truly lost, leaving his men across the field to fend for themselves and informing no one of his intentions save for his closest retinue of men. Karu Mustafa, Srasker and Grand Vizier of the Ottoman Empire fled the field for Hungary shortly before 6pm on the 12th of September 1683. Next time, we'll continue this story. I'm just kidding. I would not do that to you, okay? We've still got a bit of story to go, and it's an incredible story. So let's keep going. Let's keep going with the battle. You see, in battles past, the Ottomans had proved devastatingly effective at playing to their strengths. The favourite tactic was to destroy the heavy western cavalry by drawing them into a fortified position and then annihilating them with heavy cannon and arms fire. This had been done to the cream of the Hungarian crop, at the Battle of Mahach in 1526, whereupon the Kingdom of Hungary had been basically destroyed in the space of a day. Yet in this case, the sharpened stakes remained in the camp, the wagons necessary for forming a defensive line had all been commissioned for the escape, and the best strategists had long since abandoned this doomed cause. So it was that when the order was given by Jan Sobieski, they faced perhaps the most ideal circumstances imaginable for the charge of the winged hussars. Yet, for all that, it would not be a clean sweep of the brush against a hopeless enemy position. Those soldiers that did stay behind to brave the charge on the left flank were expecting a glorious death, and they desired only to take the infidel down with them. Then, on the other hand, there were the uninformed soldiery, those who had not been told of the crumbling positions around them, and were only told to stay and hold the line. As per their orders, these men would stand and fight to the best of their ability, even as the storm seemed to rise around them. ground shook, and then they began to hear it, a kind of howling mixed with intermittent clicking. Those Ottoman cavalry noted that their steeds became restless and whinnied, making them harder to control. It was as though the beast could sense what the man could not fully grasp, that everyone was in grave danger. Through a series of clearings and over a set of clumped trees, the winged hussars seemed to just emerge, gliding on steeds apparently species apart from their own. The gleaming, polished breastplates of the hussars stunned those even among their own ranks. Spread out across a line over 500 metres wide, with as many as 3,000 heavy hussars taking the brunt of the charge, and with the king somewhere in there as well, the riders seemed like a surreal image from another world, accompanied by the fearsome sight and sound of hooves thundering and howling through the air. The sight of the wings ripped the heart from the defenders. At this sight, some soldiers simply threw their arms down and fled, making easy prey for the invincible thrust of the king's horses. Like a bolt of lightning, did Sobieski's force fan itself out still further and faster to capture the stragglers. With all the impact of a small tank, the winged hussars at the front crush and impale with the lance any enemy, unable or unwilling to flee, and after a few instances of this display, they soon found few challengers 
willing to contest the field. As men fled further to the left, apparently to run from Sobieski's wide arc of advancement, a further crushing discovery was made as Sobieski's own right flank, some paces behind him and lower down on the hill, emerged from the forested plain and struck further blows at breakneck speed. All along the Ottoman line, chaos seemed to reign supreme. Those desperate men who could not escape attempted to stand their ground, only to be cut to pieces by a hussar's sabre or trampled underfoot by the supporting cavalry. Behind them the infantry followed, shouting cries of spiritual dedication and assurance, which seemed to spur them further on. Nothing could stop this wave of man and beast, and the gallop across the plain towards the last Ottoman trenches continued almost unopposed, as the Turks attempted to flee where possible, and hide where it was not. Nothing seemed able to escape from the widespread advance. To the Polish king's left, his allied commanders pushed forward at a pace and fury uniquely their own, shattering any units of the enemy left behind. Utterly broken, with their vizier long since having abandoned them to their grisly fate, the once fearsome horde of the Ottoman Empire had been forced to flee by the apparently supernatural awe of the winged hussar. In reality, of course, this was merely the last nail in the coffin of the Ottoman defence, and in many cases the sheer threat posed by the winged hussars and the spectacle they presented had been enough to shatter the already demoralised Turks before contact was even made. But if this was merely the nail in the coffin, then what a spectacular and intensely striking nail it was. Sobieski's charge essentially cleared the entirety of the Ottoman soldiery from the field, as many sought to flee into their own camp, where they were pursued by the relentless Assars. Much plundering and looting was had that evening, as the forces of the Ottoman Empire dissipated and fled in different directions, some seeking to cross the river away from Sobieski's advance, others seeking passage with comrades to the east wherever refuge could be found. Twelve hours after the attack had been first taken on by Lorraine's forces, Sobieski had totally wrapped the affair up. As his allies moved to support and join in with the plundering of the enemy camp, messengers were sent into the city of Vienna to inform the citizens of the good news. The devastated land all around the city, the marks left by the Ottoman siege and the impact left on the city by the Grand Vizier's grand ambitions, all of these would surely last for some time. Yet, even after their impact faded away, the surely euphoric citizens could be certain that the story of their plight, of their endurance and their ultimate triumph before this incredible and heaven-sent saving force, that would be a story which would last forever. By 10pm on the 12th of September 1683, the implications were clear. The Ottoman army had fled, the Turk had lost, and Vienna was finally saved. Alright history friends, and that's really going to do it for this week's episode. I have to remind you guys that you can catch more Sobieski-centred versions of the story in the Jan Sobieski biography that we did on this man and the legend. And I will see you guys in the new year for more When Diplomacy Fails, but not exactly more of the long war. There's a whole load of amazing content to come from When Diplomacy Fails in 2018, but for now i just like to say a huge thanks for listening to the conclusion of the Long War story and, well, a huge thanks as well for helping make 2017 the best year of When Diplomacy Fails yet. I hope you guys have a great Christmas, great happy holidays, Hanukkah, New Year and all that lovely stuff. 
and I will be seeing you accompanied by even more incredible stories from history next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.